Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 254. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 254 you're listening to. My guest today is Jonah Strauss. Jonah is making a second appearance here on the show. His first was at WCA number 16, uh, when unfortunately his appearance was based on the fact that his studio suffered fire damage. That was Shipwreck Studios. And since then, Jonah has a new space called Survivor Sound, very appropriately named. And I paid a visit to Jonah to talk to him about his journey as well as a few other different topics. And man, what a beautiful space he's developed. It's it's really fantastic. So Jonah Strauss coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Lots to talk about. First thing on my mind I want to, of course, talk about is the loss to our community of the great engineer Ed Cherney this past week. Ed died on Monday, I believe it was. I never, ever met Ed. I never made the opportunity. I had plenty of opportunity to do so, and I never did, and I deeply, deeply regret it. As a matter of fact, it was at a potluck audio conference in Tucson in the breakfast room. I was eating breakfast saw him across the room, had the opportunity to go over there, and I thought, no, I'm not going to go bother him right now. Man, I would really, really wish I did. Everything I've heard about Ed from the many mutual friends that we had, many who have been on this show, is that he was a fantastic engineer. That I can, I know on my own. I know that his work with the Stones and Bonnie Raitt and countless other artists is just impeccable. What I learned from all of our mutual friends is that he was a stellar human being, just a great example of a human being, a person that would really go out of his way to make you feel comfortable, even though he may not know you. So if you entered the room and, and he didn't know you, he'd, he'd make you feel comfortable and maybe get you to crack a smile through a joke or whatever. But everybody has just talked about what a fantastic human he, he was and how just his approach to life and his passion and love for golf and, and his passion and love for just music and being appreciative of the position that he was in. And it's got me to really reflect this past week. And I, it, it's, a, it's a damn shame that when somebody dies, it takes them dying for us to kind of examine their lives and, and figure out their value that they really brought to the rest of the world. And the death of Ed has caused me to go back and just read these comments that people have put out about him, about how good of a person he was. In every situation this week, I, I, I gotta be honest, I have said to myself, what would Ed Cherney do? In situations where I've been impatient or grumpy or just not appreciating the position that I'm in at this point in my life. And and I would encourage all of you to do the same. You know, it's easy to, to get pissed off at a lot of different things in this world at this time. But, you know, we, we have this one life, right? And you got to li- live it to the fullest extent that makes you happy. Just going off those comments alone, it's just really caused me in all these situations to think, what would Ed Cherney do? You know, how would he react? You know, based on the little that I do know about him. If you if you don't know who he is, I encourage you, please Google him. We definitely lost somebody who uh, was an asset to our community. So raising a coffee cup and that, you know, that when I raise a coffee cup, that's just the highest form of re- respect to Ed Cherney. Thank you, Ed, for all the contributions you made to us. Um, so this past week, I um, had I went out to see one of my one of my new favorite bands, the Black Pumas. I mentioned that in the last episode that I was going to go check that out. Holy crap! <laughs> you guys, you got to see this band. Really amazing. The singer just I, I don't even know the names of the people in the band, uh, but the singer just absolutely amazing super charismatic immediately from the minute he set foot on the stage just took control of that crowd in the the most loving and genuine way just came out with a a great attitude and I, i loved it it was great killer players 
great presentation. And uh, unfortunately, I was feeling somewhat ill, and I went out anyway. <laughs> I told my friend that was with me, I said, hey, man, I might have to cut out like halfway through. I'm not feeling tip-top here, but I really wanted to come out and check the band out. So it was a great show. From what I saw, it was at the Independent in San Francisco. Absolutely sold out two nights in a row. Check them out. I'll include a link in the show notes. I streamed them initially on Google, but then, you know what? I just, I dug it so much that I had to go out and I bought the vinyl. I may have mentioned that many, many episodes ago. Got the vinyl, got the shirt, got the show, you know, just... I wanted to put my, my money where my, my mouth was and, uh, and my heart was for these guys because they are just amazing and I love to get behind a band like that. So, uh, yeah, Black Pumas, check them out. Brilliant band. Uh, what else? What else? I know I've mentioned it before, but I'll mention it again. I found a great home on LinkedIn. I really enjoy being there. If you've reached out to me on Facebook and I haven't responded, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Link is always in the show notes from here on out. Would love to uh, connect with you. Send me a connection request. I will accept it. Send me a message if you if you got a message. That's the place to find me, LinkedIn. In fact, our last guest, Mary Masaryk, uh, came as a result of me being on LinkedIn and doing a little research on other engineers out there. So check me out there. If you don't have an account, create one. It's a great place to connect with, with others in a professional manner and be free of all the craziness that Facebook brings in terms of memes and politics. And if you just want to focus on, on audio and business and that part of your life, that's a great place to do it, LinkedIn. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Jonah Strauss here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. 
Hi, Jonah. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. We are here at Survivor Sound in Oakland, California, and this is Jonah's studio that he currently inhabits. And for those of you that don't know, it was March of 2015 that you were on the show the first time around on episode WC number 16. And at the time, I had been doing only two shows a month, and then Jonah came on my radar. Well, he was already on my radar, but he, he had this fire happen, which we're going to talk about at a studio and i immediately wanted to reach out and say hey you okay what you know can you come on the show talk about what happened and that started a couple things in motion not only for the podcast going to four episodes a month but it also started a lot of things in motion for jonah which we're about to talk about so welcome back it's good to have you thanks let's talk about what's happened since that fire a lot of things have changed. You've had a lot of revelations. I'll stop talking and let you tell me the story. So yeah, March of 2015, in brief, there was a lethal fire. Two men died. And it was above my live workspace on 24th Street between Martin Luther King and San Pablo in Oakland. And on my side of the building, it was Shipwreck Studio. And then on the other side of the building was a DIY show space. And there was a fire. It was pretty clear that we were never going to be let back in. I had nowhere to put my stuff. I was very lucky in that a lot of the equipment survived. My life changed in so many ways, of course. I was homeless for about seven months, and I was here and there with that. I was very lucky that I had resources, places to stay. I had nowhere to put the gear, so I just like squatted the gear in my place. And then finally found a place a few blocks away that was really cool, actually, that's now a video production studio up on 28th Street that I handed off to my friend, and that was like my intermediate space. And then a lot of water has gone under the bridge, but I looked for years for a space where I could do the new studio and really make it everything that it should be and could be. And I feel very lucky to have found this space and to have had the opportunity to put together the gear complement that's here and most importantly make a space that is specifically designed to be welcoming to artists from many different music communities. I mean, moving into a space in East Oakland has really given me the opportunity to fully bring the experiences that I've had in the intervening years into my current practice where I'm here to service music communities in East Oakland that I simply wouldn't have access to in West Oakland. It's very accessible to outside engineers, but also the fundamental ethical underpinnings of the place are that we're trying to provide access for low-income musicians. And so there's actually a cost offset program where people can pay a standard rate as opposed to a community rate, and the standard rate's a little higher. And that excess covers us to be able to provide recording services, mixing and mastering services to low-income musicians who simply wouldn't have the opportunity to get in with a studio otherwise or would have to haggle. So I never want to have to haggle with anybody. I just set the prices as low as I possibly can and still be able to run a studio, at least in theory, in the long run. Hopefully we'll see a lot of music coming out real soon. I think that the name of the new studio is is very well chosen considering where you came from. You were at Shipwreck before and now you're Survivor Sound. Purposeful, obviously. Yeah. Well, part of it is is an acknowledgement of what's happening in the Bay Area. I mean, capitalism has gotten so egregious and most of the governments of the cities in the Bay Area, and especially in Oakland, have been so welcoming of development and so welcoming of quote-unquote market rate property that, you know, all the folks who've lived here for generations and all the folks who moved here in the 40s and 50s and all of their offspring cannot afford to stay here anymore. And I feel in this space, I'm very lucky to have it and have access to it. And I want it to be around for a long time. I think of Survivor Sound much more as a community institution rather than a recording studio. The time after the fire, what are some of the difficulties you had to deal with in terms of whether it be insurance companies, finding a place to live, generating money? That's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that is a part of the puzzle is that I 
was a concert lighting designer for about 20 years. From 2008 to 2015, I was splitting my time between running Shipwreck and touring with bands. So, you know, Blonde Redhead, TV on the radio. I was Arcade Fire's first lighting designer. So I really, I had the opportunity to save a bit of money. Not much, but I was like, okay. Like the fire didn't make me destitute. And I'm very lucky to have different places to stay. So when I say I was homeless, I was only partially homeless. But it really was difficult, you know, because you do need your own space. So eking that out was pretty tough. I think I lived in six different spaces over the course of the intervening years, whatever it was, three years. So like during the time of doing a tremendous amount of community advocacy after Ghost Ship and being quite involved in Oakland and to a degree state-level politics, I was moving around from place to place. And one of the funniest experiences was I was speaking with some secretary at Oakland City Hall because I was dropping off some documents for a resolution that we're putting in. And she was like, oh, well, you know, when you get back to your office, you know, can you can you email us this and this? And I was like, ha ha, my office. <laughs> like, I'm going to go to the coffee shop and look at my phone and try and figure out how to make this into a PDF right now. You're very community centric as an individual. That's my perception of you. You you seem to be highly aware of of the plight of a lot of people who are in unfortunate situations in the Bay Area. And you seem to have a strong heart for it. So I'm curious how that plays a part in your decision-making process as a studio, as a business owner. Well, you know, when I say my life changed, it wasn't just my circumstances. It was my entire approach to everything. So I gained compassion for homeless folks from being partially homeless myself, right? And I gained compassion for people who are affected, A, by fire, obviously, and B, by displacement through my experience. And so when Ghost Ship hit on December 2nd of 2016. The Ghost Ship fire. Yeah. So for folks who don't know, and there's a lot of people who actually don't know, Ghost Ship was a very poorly managed, very egregiously poorly built out live work space that was by leagues more unsafe than any other lives workspace in Oakland. It was like a real outlier, right? And they used to have shows. And 36 people died that night, and two of them were close friends of mine, and I knew a lot of other people from the scene. I wasn't there that night, but I have a lot of friends who were. And so that obviously affected everybody around me and affected Oakland, and in fact affected a lot of live workspaces and a lot of music focused spaces throughout the United States and to a degree the world, but in the United States in particular, you know, all of these local jurisdictions took the opportunity to freak out and go, oh, well, if it's a live work show space, you just can't have it because it's like ghost ship, which is just fundamentally untrue of 99.999% of spaces. And so I got into advocacy and into helping folks who were getting just like egregiously victimized by the city of Oakland building department and by developers who saw a real opportunity to get rid of these spaces. From my perspective of that too, is that I also feel that the city of Oakland, and from what I understand, the building department or, or the, the people that had gone- The planning to, and building department. Everybody in the, in the Oakland city government, not everybody, but a lot of people in the Oakland city government managed to escape any kind of scrutiny because I think that there was a point at which there was question of the building inspectors that never followed up that, and I don't know the full facts on that, so I'm not going to try to speak authoritatively on it, but it seems that if you are in the Oakland city government at that point, you think we can't have another ghost ship fire clamped down on all this so we can and they avoid have, any liability. Yeah, they have the power to do so. So on the one hand, yes, <laughs> that is absolutely, absolutely accurate. And it's multi-departmental. It's, it's the building and planning department. It's the fire department. It's the city administration. It's the mayor's office, especially. So on the one hand, it's not all about Libby Schaff, but certainly, you know, the mayor's office and, and they have a whole tourism, tourism office. On the one hand, they're trumpeting Oakland as a real artsy town. And then on the other hand, they're literally displacing all of their artists on purpose. And it's a, a really unfortunate truth, but it continues to this day. And the landscape has shifted in a way that will probably take 10 to 15 years to come back from. Hmm. 
So that fire affected you greatly. Not not only did your fire affect you, but that ghost ship fire affected you as well. I was doing advocacy every single day, and I was helping clear out people's warehouse spaces so they could get them ready for inspection. I was helping clear out people's warehouse spaces so that they could move. I was finding people attorneys, keeping them from getting evicted. I was uh, providing a great deal of emotional support as part of tenants' rights advocacy and tenant support. I was doing a lot of referrals. I got to know all of the local tenants' rights attorneys. I got to know all of the people who were for us. I got to know all of the people who were against us. The organization was called Oakland Warehouse Coalition, which is on hiatus at the moment because if I was still doing it, I wouldn't be able to have a business. Yeah, it was a real experience. But to get back to your question, late in the game, I started realizing that the stuff that I was working on, while very important to me and my immediate music community, I started realizing that what I was working on was not actually the most important thing to be working on. And I really took a clue from a lot of other advocates, and I started working in homeless rights advocacy and trying to change the homeless landscape within Oakland City Hall and the way that the administration approaches it. Having those experiences really, really grounded me. I didn't identify as a socialist until I was displaced. I had those experiences. I knew what it was like to be in very inclement situations. And I had seen my friends and my community members go through inclement situations, but it never really got cemented exactly how much we need to focus on lifting people up until I started doing homeless advocacy. That was the real clincher. And so it's really funny, like in this neighborhood, we're in the dubs, right? We're around East 14th Street and 23rd Ave in Oakland. People go, oh, how are you with that neighborhood? I'm like, I'm fine with this neighborhood. Like, walk around, get to know your neighbors. Actually, everybody's great. My life has just changed. And so, well, I wouldn't wish the events of 2015, 2016 on anybody. I am grateful that I had the opportunity to shift my life around. I have a real different approach to things now. I had a lot of sort of survivor's guilt, if that makes sense, in establishing this space. I was like, oh God, you know, I have a place to be, I have a place to have this business, but is this the right thing to be doing? Like, shouldn't I be the, be out there doing doing political advocacy because I'm I'm a white cisgendered male with a relatively educated background and I'm capable of speaking at City Hall and advocating for folks and doing good work in that way. And so I, I had some survivor's guilt. I was I was really like, oh God, is this the right thing to be doing? And eventually I had to stop because if I didn't do this, I wouldn't have an income. So, I mean, I'm just scraping by, frankly, and I hope that this can become a stable operation in the very near future so that we can continue to do the work that we've laid out for the next several years, if not decades. I don't want to go too deep down a rabbit hole on this, but I do want to raise the question just to play devil's advocate to you. I certainly appreciate the fact that you've been out there trying to help other people out, period. I love that. And I think that, you know, this world could use more of that, period. However, I must ask, from my perspective, I feel that you can do better work if you establish yourself first. In other words, you know, when you're on the airplane and they say, if you're sitting next to a kid, when the oxygen mask drops down, put your mask on and then help others so that you can be... Uh, established so that you can then take care of others. But if you're not taken care of and and taking care of yourself first, then it it makes it harder to help others because you're like, oh shit, I've been taking care of these people and now I'm kind of in their position. Well, I think for myself and a lot of folks who have done similar work or do similar work, and frankly, I only did a few years of it, and most people who do tenant advocacy and homeless advocacy do it for their entire lives and Mm. have an incredible amount of respect for those folks. I, I don't hold a candle to those folks. It's not so much a choice as a moral imperative. You're driven by something that a lot of people in the working world never see. You're driven by something that a lot of people in music, frankly, never see. I feel like as recording engineers, we operate with a fundamental privilege of getting to work with really cool, mostly really expensive stuff. And don't get me wrong, people save up for years and scrimp and bust their ass to become good enough to get enough money 
to buy the real stuff. And I'm not discounting anybody for that. But I don't know, just going through what I went through really helped me recognize what we're here for as engineers, as opposed to what a capitalist industry wants us to believe that we're here for. As my mom used to say, you make your own happiness. And I think that if that drives you and that makes you happy to help others and to have a higher calling and use for your skills as an audio professional, I say kudos to you. It's interesting that you call it a calling. I don't think I'd call it a calling, but I do see an opportunity. And one of the things that I can do is really sort of dig into, okay, who can I service here with this incredible resource that I have and this equipment and my ears and such? Who can I service who not a lot of other engineers can service? Who can I take care of? And something that I can do is I can take care of the queer community, right? I am queer. Most of my friends are queer. And frankly, the people who I want to be around and involved with musically a lot of times are also queer. And I think I wouldn't have been this out about it. I mean, I tell everybody, but I wouldn't have been this out about it and really dedicated to making sure that queer musicians have a safe space to create if I hadn't had the experiences that I went through. I was just like not as selective before. And now I really put it out there. And I mean, obviously, like, yeah, especially right now in the studio's history, I will definitely take anybody who comes through who wants to make a record and mm-hmm. is and is skilled, right, without exception. But I can really take care of my community in a way I feel like a lot of engineers can't. And there are, and as you know, from doing all the interviews you do, there's like a huge surge of women in the industry. And I'm so grateful and appreciative to see that. And so, yeah, just in trying to figure out like, oh, well, what is our niche? I mean, I don't, I don't think we really need a niche because the studio is very flexible and I'm not trying to make one kind of music. Mm-hmm. But there's, there's definitely communities and I think an expanding community that we're going to be able to serve. Let me ask, this may sound like a naive question. Whatever. I'm a straight dude. But that's cool. I, what I don't understand is... Hey, straight people are okay, too. <laughs> what, what I don't understand in that statement is you say, I could service the queer community. Can I also service the queer community? Absolutely. But there's something that happens when you're in a marginalized community. I'm not saying everybody, right? And right. I, I mean, there's a scale. So like at one end of the scale, black and brown trans women would be like the most marginalized on the queer scale, right? And then like white cisgender gay males would be all the way on the least marginalized end of the scale. One is running for president currently. And so you have a huge swath of folks with a varying amount of access to spaces that they feel comfortable in, if that makes sense. And so it's not like Anybody can't record anybody. And it's by no means a criticism of the most engineers, you know. And frankly, I've I've never worked with or met an engineer who is homophobic, although I've met plenty of inherently sexist engineers who just don't even realize how they talk to women. And it's really quite sad. So, yeah, so there's an opportunity because even though I I have a bit of privilege, I, I roll in these circles where privilege is very deeply self-examined and self-examinable, and it's expected. I guess it's just a little bit of an unknown to me, because I I guess, from my perspective, anybody that I work with... Now, granted, I've made somebody cry before, but that was was a whole other episode, but... You should have placed the microphone right. I I tell you, I'm such an asshole, but... um, I think anybody that I work with, I just, I guess I don't really care where they're coming from, if they're gay, straight, Christian, Muslim, as long as they're there to do something where, number one, I'm getting paid to help them facilitate that. We're on equal footing all the way around. And that's the right approach to have. And so I, that's why I'm confused by your statement. And that's why... Have you heard of the concept of microaggression. I have heard of this concept. I don't want to go too deep into it, but there's a lot of subtleties in the way that people interact with other people. And it's funny. I mean, we're both in in this position of privilege, right? We're white men. And so we're not hip to a lot of the ways that people experience the world, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, even my partners, the way that they experience the world is quite different than me. And there's all this stuff that happens 
all the time, every day, not just on the street, but in business, at work, whatever your work is. And that extends to recording situations as well. And so you can be the most woke white dude on the planet, but still, every once in a while, there's going to be something that you do that people in their head, they're going to be, I'm making the tip my head motion and like looking at you askance. (laughs) For the listeners. But there's always going to be something that you do that people are going to be like, oh, right, this person is like not coming from the same perspective as me. So what I'm trying to do is provide an environment where that's really mitigated as much as possible Mm. with that sort of recognition. And so that's why actually I just decided, you know what, we're going to call the studio queer owned and operated just so that as a baseline, Mm -hmm. people know what footing we're on. And that doesn't mean like yourself, we can't service everybody. We're not trying to put ourselves into a niche, but we want to make sure that we're a beacon for queer musicians and they really know that there's a, a wonderful space to have access to and that we're going to make every possible accommodation that we can. Do you feel that on on the whole, unless you hang that sign out here? I'm just doing it verbally. Yeah. When you say that, I mean, do, do you think that those that are queer would not necessarily go to other places? Oh, I know for a fact. Yeah. So I don't know how, how hip you are to underground recording because I, I know you do a lot of above board stuff and I don't know necessarily how many listeners are hip to underground recording, but there's just a lot of albums that get recorded partially. This is for monetary reasons, but also for comfort reasons. There's a lot of albums that are recorded that are self-recorded that like really the music is of the quality that it should have been recorded in a professional studio and represented very well. Like it hurts my heart to hear bands that I really have a lot of respect for and I've seen live and they blow me away and I hear the record and I'm like, well, geez, you know, I really wish that that could sound better. And you look and yeah, it's, you know, self-recorded and somebody mixed it and everybody did as well as they could with it. And it's cool. Don't get me wrong. The feeling is there, but it's not well represented. And I see that happening in queer community. I see that happening in communities of color, for sure. And I just think it's unfortunate. And so I'm not saying, oh, poor people who don't don't have enough money to go into the studio. What I'm saying is like, this is a real opportunity to lift people up and provide access to folks who wouldn't necessarily have access otherwise. So you you feel like you're providing a service that gives people who don't necessarily have access to higher-end places or higher-end recording oh, yeah. opportunities to provide that to them. Now, granted, it makes me think, well, what about like some of the recordings from our past early hip-hop recordings or early punk rock recordings that also were in the same position to me, there's like a, there's a charm to them. There's a record by, prior to Fugazi, Rites of Spring, one of the singers from Fugazi, Don Zientara recorded that in his house, and it's just, it's got this like strained sound to it, but it is just, it, had it been recorded in a higher-end situation, it would have robbed it of the magic of what it is. So, so let's break down high-end. So I have the gear. I have the space, but that doesn't mean we need to treat it like high end. And that's actually the reason why I've set up the studio to look how it does. Mm. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm not trying to go, oh, look, you're in this very nice studio now. Please welcome. Here's our selection of fine organic teams. (laughs) You know, I'm trying to make a space that people feel comfortable in immediately without having shag carpeting. Not that that really makes anybody comfortable nowadays. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, there's a Neve. Yeah, there's an Ampex. Yeah, there's a grand piano and I got a huge drum collection. We have some pretty good mics and the live room is tuned. And yeah, everything sounds good. Yes, it's a very professional operation, but that doesn't mean we can't hang. Right. And in fact, everything really has been set up so that people, as soon as they walk in, they should just drop everything and they just should feel totally comfortable. I've like really made it a point to make sure that there's a great headphone situation here and a very flexible headphone situation so that nobody is in that sort of strained emotional space where you can't really hear what you need to hear to make your music, you know, like, yeah, okay, we need to isolate stuff, not all the time, but if you want to isolate stuff or whoever's producing, even if that's the band wants to isolate stuff, like I want to make sure that people feel really, really comfortable. So this place that we're in audience, I wish you could see it. It's really cool. It's very comfortable. It's John's got a his sense of decor, I guess, for lack of a better term, is fantastic. Like the place has all this kind of cool, funky stuff, like tubes on the wall, art on the wall, 
There's a combination of old and new gear. I think any of you as audio professionals would walk in and go, ooh, this is a cool place. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So how did you come upon this space? And we'll I want to touch on this neighborhood a bit because sure. when you say International Boulevard in Oakland, usually if there's some thing on the local news about a shooting, it's International Boulevard, one out of every five or 10 times is mentioned. And so I'd like you to dispel a little bit about the neighborhood as you started to earlier about perceptions of the neighborhood. Sure. Let me talk about how I found the space. Have you heard of James Meter? Yeah, I know James Meter. Right. So James Meter, who I was introduced to by my friend Cliff, James is kind of responsible for me getting this space. And I'm so appreciative. And I already told him, I was like, dude, you have a bunch of free time here. <laughs> you know, now that the space is built, please come record. And so James hipped me to this space. So he introduced me to the owner of the building, who's a jazz bassist. He bought the building several years ago. So James introduced me to the owner of the building. I was floored. I was like, well, this is great. Okay, how do we do this? But really what it was, was it was a years-long process because I didn't come in and say, I would like this studio. And in fact, originally, I was really attached to finding a place with very high ceilings because I had been used to recording in my space on 24th Street, which was like concrete, drywall, and a little bit of wood. So I wasn't like instantly in love with the space, but I did see it as a resource. The main reason I wasn't in love with the space was because there was like carpet glued to the concrete <laughs> and all of the walls were painted these weird colors. And you could see that like the electrical install was like not so hot. And also I had a space to be on 28th street at the time. And so I was into it. But I didn't approach the owner and go, let's work something out. I was like, okay, this is cool. Let's, let's keep talking. And uh, I had the opportunity to help him during the whole post-ghost ship stuff with the city a little bit. So we developed a camaraderie that way. And then at the same time, I was working on the board. I was just like, okay, I can absolutely run a studio around my Trident 24 that I've had since 2010. But God, wouldn't it be great if I could like get this console that I've heard of? Just slowly but surely. So I worked on my relationships with the owner of the building and the owner of the console just slowly while I was doing all that political advocacy and very slowly it came together. And actually, I don't really see being in this neighborhood as an advantage. This neighborhood, let's see, so for people who don't know or who aren't in Oakland, first of all, there's a lot of misperceptions of Oakland as a really dangerous space. And frankly, it's block by block. It really depends on how you carry yourself. Frankly, there's a lot of common sense that comes with living in Oakland, as you know, from living in Oakland, you know, mm -hmm. don't leave stuff in your car anywhere, dumbass. <laughs> and, you know, similarly, don't walk around at night with headphones on. Just don't be a target. So, I mean, I can survive in almost any city in the world because I walked around Oakland since 2004. Let's see. So what's the deal? International Boulevard is a main thoroughfare of Oakland. The further you get away north from International up towards the hills. And then, of course, in the hills, the more shishi it becomes. And so International Boulevard is real. It's called East 14th Street, technically. The particular area that we're in, we're around 23rd Ave. And so it's called the Dubs, as in the 20s. It's also called the Twomps for quite a while. I really don't think of it as dangerous. There's a lot going on. I mean, I will say one thing. I would not drive on International on a Saturday night at 2 a.m., because people drive batshit. It's straight up just not safe. There's a lot going on. The deeper east you get into Oakland, the less gentrified it becomes. It becomes more black. Oakland is like a really wonderful melting pot, but it does absolutely nowadays with everything that's happened in the last decade, since 2008, really, because the subprime mortgage crisis and every almost every elderly black person in West Oakland losing their home, what's happened is that Oakland 
basically goes from white to black as you go from west to east. It's a real weird dynamic. So even though it, it is truly mixed all throughout Oakland, there's not really any pockets of like, this is this space is like, this is all white people here, this is all black people here. It's really true that East Oakland is more heavily policed and as if there is not already enough problems in the black community from decades of financial turmoil and being shoved to the bottom of the barrel, like the people have to deal with like heavy duty policing and people lash out. So like there's a lot of misbehavior that affects a lot of other folks and it's unfortunate, but it's like, it's all part of this like incredibly complicated melting pot that I don't even have access to a, to a large degree. And that's the thing that, so that brings me back to privilege. You just have to recognize your lack of experience. When I walk around East Oakland, I keep my wits about me and I talk to people. I've been here since 04. I was living in West Oakland. I'm living in West Oakland again, actually. I don't live at the studio. It's really helped me the length of time that I've been here. So, like, you walk around Oakland, the first thing that people want to know is how long you've been here. Like, that is what it's come to. They just want to know how long you've been here in the Bay. It's a tough thing to have to grapple with, but if you've been here for a while, it's a lot easier. So, like, I pity the fool who just moves to the Bay and tries to get around on the street. Like, it's going to be a lot tougher for you, you know, because people value you based on whether or not you're a gentrifier, especially as a white person. Always the first question I get. Oh, yeah, how long you been around? Oh, I've been around since 04, living in West Oakland, you know. Oh, okay, all right. That's all, all you can hope for is like, oh, okay, all right. You know, this guy might might have a sliver of a chance of being cool. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, they can spot a techie from a mile away. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Fresh out of college, coming here to oh my God. work at a startup. Yeah, and it's like, it's not even, this is not even a color thing. This is just a straight up class thing. Like people of all races and all backgrounds who are just trying to survive in the Bay, the tech industry could take a long walk off of a short pier and everybody who's lived here forever would be more than happy. And frankly, there's a lot of locals who've, who are like from Oakland, from San Francisco, who did get into tech. And I get it, you right. know, like, I don't think it's like fundamentally wrong to work in tech, but what that industry has done to the Bay and specifically the realty industry and the development industry as a result of that, just with this humongous decade long cash grab, Oh, God, it's so bad. It's so nasty. Well, so the studio, how are you doing here? Are you making mon enough money to keep the doors open? Are you freaking out at all? I was freaking out for a few months because every month it's pretty tough to pay rent. I still have a surplus of equipment, so I've been sort of puttering along money-wise by selling off equipment. But I'm in a lot of debt. I didn't have any investors or anything. There was one private loan. I just have an incredible amount of credit card debt. For now, I'm just kind of scraping by. So the studio isn't booked enough for it to stay above water, right? So like I can't even tread at the level of booking that it's at right now. I think I had a vision going into this where I was like, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the, the analog is if you build it, they will come. And it's a funny movie to be thinking back to all the time. But I, I really... Field of Dreams, yeah, yes, right. Yeah, just in case... Just in anybody, case anybody's wondering, he's talking about Field of Dreams, right, so about in, baseball. Yeah, so in Field, of, in, in Field of Dreams, Kevin Costner hears this voice, if you build it, they will come. Or if you build it, he will come. Or ref something Referring like to his departed father. And, I mean, that was unfortunately ricocheting in my head as I was sawing lumber. I was, you know, really hoping for the best. And I do hope for the best. And I have a lot of faith. I think that we will be here for years to come. I think that we will be able to service the communities that we're trying to serve and everybody else. And I think that we will be able to make a name for ourselves as a real resource for folks. It's just getting past the first year. The main issue is that nobody knows that this place exists, and that's the weird thing. So I'm really realizing when you're not operating on capitalist terms and you're not able to, in good conscience go out and promote the studio as frankly a lot of other studios do i think it's a lot tougher to get clients so like i can't even personally imagine going out and doing this but i think there's a lot of people who either come out of the gate or even once they're established present the studio as like this is the most high-end environment in which to make any music you like in fact, we have world-class equipment. Look at all these sponsorships. And like, not everybody is like that. But I mean, it's really true. Like the industry leans on how fancy their stuff is. And then the rates, like 
I understand. Like people have to charge twelve hundred dollars a day because the engineer costs four hundred as they should, and it takes a lot of money to run a space with a bunch of vintage Neumanns, and it's like you know, and and a space that oh I don't know you might be a million and a half dollars in debt from some of these high end spots. And like, I respect that. That's fine. Run your business that way. I don't think it's a problem to run your business that way. I just literally wouldn't know how to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I don't really have access to this fallback of being like, everything is so nice. Because frankly, if I did that, I wouldn't be able to serve the communities I'm trying to serve. I'm not trying to impress people. I'm trying to work with people and like really provide an opportunity that a lot of people might not have. Well, what do you think is standing in your way of more solid booking? Oh, people just don't know that it exists. So it's a marketing issue. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just posted on Facebook the other day. I was like, hey, does somebody know like a marketing person who could actually represent the studio correctly? And nobody really came forward who was like the perfect referral. I did check out a few things and I, and I did appreciate the references. But yeah, I can do social media mm-hmm. and I can do like a little bit of advertising myself. And But mainly I can talk to folks. I can talk to folks and I can get the word out. And now Zoe, my apprentice, who's going to be a fantastic engineer here, when she starts taking more sessions, we get the word out. We talk to people. And I have to tell you, I mean, the stuff that's come through already has been fantastic. I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to work on stuff. There's just like a, a bunch of stuff that's come through that I'm really excited about. It's fantastic music. I want to bring this to the audience's attention, too, is that you talked about as I came in and we were getting coffee and I was wandering around. You were telling me about the place. This used to be freeway recording. Yes. Just for those in in the Bay Area who have been here a long time or maybe you have moved and you recognize the name. So there is a lot of history here. This place has been here as a studio for a very long time. Well, in fits and starts, to to be frank. I mean, there's been long periods where it has not been a studio. Right. I don't know, man. I'll be honest. It's a beautiful place and it's a very comfortable place. Oh, thanks. And... You're almost in a very similar position that I was in in 2007 at the precipice of the recession, which I'm not going to blame everything on the recession of that time. But between that, my inability to run a studio effectively led to my troubles and ultimately led to this podcast. So I see some opportunities in some way based on some of the things you're saying and the communities you're talking about, it seems that there's more you could do to make them aware that there's this place that they can come and work totally and, and do stuff. It's a very anti-capitalist community, so you have to be very careful in terms of advertising. Like, the way that you present needs to be really real and approachable, that much I know. And hmm. so I'm, I'm trying to figure out the right path through that. Yeah, it's a bit of a quandary, I, I have to be honest with you. You're, you're in a lot of debt, you have a great space— And you have a community that you're tight with that it seems that if you could get that magic combination and use a little bit of, I don't know, would it be acceptable capitalism to try to get everybody in the door to create a hub? I think it's honestly, I think that advertising needs to be focused around, if you want to call it advertising, I think that exposure needs to be focused around demonstrating what we can do here and what we have done here. And so... I think it's going to be a lot of, ultimately, it's going to be a lot of video and audio of people doing stuff here. I think that we need to shoot some music videos here. I think we need to have some live, some private, obviously, live performances here where we shoot it and we document what's going on. I think, you know, as soon as people catch the vibe, because as soon as you walk into the studio, you go, oh, wow, this is really great. It's clean. It's comfortable. It's approachable. Of course, as you say, there's art on the walls. There's a lot of wood. All the rooms have their own sort of interesting character. It is also very DIY at the same time. Really, I feel like the more people I can expose to the space, the better in terms of getting the studio booked. So really, all I try to do when people approach me about potentially doing something here is I just say, just come by. Right. Just all you got to do is come over. And and I have to ask, I mean, I assume you're open to other people coming here other than just folks within the queer community. Well, yeah, that's the whole premise. I mean, everybody. Right. Oh, no. I mean, I I think we did, in fact, go down a little bit of a rabbit hole with that. I'm not here specifically for my own community in, in the same way that just because I'm really good at recording indie rock and heavier bands all at once live, that doesn't mean that's all I want to do here. Not only is it, of course, open to everybody and really 
frankly, quite emphatically so. It's also open to every other engineer. So I don't know how clear it is from the website, which frankly needs a, a revamp, but I'm setting the space up so that any engineer can come in and have really easy access to the signal flow, have really easy access to what's going on with the computer, what's going on with the outboard, with the patch bay especially. It's all very clearly labeled. <laughs> or as Larry Crane would tell you, dummy proof. Dummy proof. Yeah. And so I really spent many, many, many months just planning it out and making it as dummy proof as possible. And it will have to get a little bit more dummy proof in the future. There are some modifications to the console that I need to do to make it really, really a simple workflow for folks. But to wit, all around the studio, there's these patch panels that are color-coded. So like, there's a purple one over there and a red one over there and a green one and a blue one. And then all of the XLRs that patch in to the mic patch in the live room are color-coded those same ways. So it's really easy to see where something is. Oh, red six, great, done. It's not like point number 123. Oh, let me look at the book to see. Oh, that's the compressor input. Like, no. So, <laughs> You're taking the color coding to a, to a whole nother level, which I love. Right. I tell people, I will train any engineer. If you have even just a little bit of experience in large format analog, if you come in in advance of the session that you have booked and you really want to understand the signal flow, I will show you anything you want to know. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Let me ask you this. So how long have you been in this space since you've like officially kind of opened the doors? Oh, we opened in January. I guess you would call it a soft open, but we started being fully functional in January. So this hasn't even been a year. Oh, no. And I've been working on it since March of 2018. Okay. So I'm going to ask you what I ask a lot of guests. What at this point is your financial outlook? Some people are savers. Some people are, as, as you stated, are, are in debt. Oh, I would love to pay anything other than the minimums on credit cards. I would like my credit rating to go a little bit back up because, I mean, I've sunk it from having such high loads on cards. And so that would be really nice. And then I'll start being able to, yeah, if I can just start paying more than minimums, even incrementally, I'll be happy. Just staying above board is is the tough thing. I mean, it's re it's really very dicey, frankly, month to month. It's very dicey. Right. And it causes a lot of stress. It did until I learned to stop being so stressed out about it and just bust ass to cover it. And so, you know, that's all I'm hoping for. I mean, my living expenses are incredibly minimal. I, I live in a communal house in West Oakland and I bike everywhere. Uh, really, my entire energy is focused on the studio. And so I'm constantly upgrading and constantly maintaining. Which is good that your living expenses are low because then it makes it a lot easier to take chunks of this debt away. Yeah, hopefully, eventually. I mean, the five-year plan is basically like, have an awesome functioning studio that people love working in and have done great work in and people have heard about and get the heck out of debt so that I can start moving on. Not that I have like any lofty goals. Like I don't care if I ever bought, bought a house, like I'm, I'm over it. Right. Like, it's Oakland in 2019. I'm not going to buy a house. It's never going to happen. You know, frankly, in five years, I'd like to be out of debt so that we have more flexibility with what we can do with the space. Mm -hmm. So as soon as, the place is like consistently booked and we're working and there's more engineers who are consistently using the space because for, I'm not even trying to do all the engineering. In fact, I'm only trying to do a part of the engineering. I want everybody else to come and use the studio. That's the whole point. It's a community mm -hmm. studio, right? So 
So once we're booked and there's a music being made, it, it'll give me some freedom once some of those debts start being paid off. It'll give me some freedom to start focusing on the educational program. And that's like, like really the goal. I mean, and I've told everybody about it and people like either laugh or they don't want to listen. And I'm like, oh no, really? I'm setting up a trade school. So as soon as this place is solid, I mm-hmm. mean, I'm talking about taking like six students out of Oakland Unified School District every semester and just like working with six, eight students, something like that. Not me personally, because I'm frankly not qualified as a teacher, but I'd like to find folks in the long run, hint, hint for anybody listening, who are super down to conceptualize and then go ahead and set up. Uh, So you have to have some sort of experience with the way a nonprofit functions or solid recording teaching experience. I'd like to find folks who are super down to set up a nonprofit that would operate out of the B room Mm -hmm. when the B room comes online, because that's a great, that will be a great mixing, mastering overdub space. There's no live room attached to it, just an ISO booth and then like an amp ISO kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And also that's adjacent to where we store the plates, this hallway that's also handy for stuff. And my Trident will be there. There's a bunch of good outboard gear. And of course, there'll be a nice computer set up, Pro Tools and blah, blah, blah. And so I want to have that as a resource so that we can take care of specifically high school students. And you have to be black, brown, or queer and low income. And we want to take care of high school students because I think it's completely ridiculous that anybody would have to go to college for recording. You absolutely need a program or a lot of either internship or, you know, associated experience where you're around engineering all the time, you know, even if you just grew up with it, but you have to have the experience. And it's like, how are people going to do analog recording in the future if we don't teach them, right? And so I just think of it as like, like, you know, the concept of the, of the tech high school, which only exists very marginally these days, but in the 50s and 60s, like you either went to like an educational high school or you just went to a tech school and learned a trade. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any reason to go to college for recording. I think you can do it in high school because there's a lot of really young engineers who frankly are fantastic at what they do. I mean, most of those folks only have experience sitting in front of a computer screen, but I digress. So I, I think that, you know, the one major recording school in the Bay that's extremely expensive to go to, I really don't think that that should have to be the fallback for folks because again it comes back to privilege like that place is so expensive and it's unnecessary and it just blocks folks who could have incredible creative outputs from having access to that kind of education so i think that like setting up a sort of small nonprofit and figuring out how to get that funded would be a fantastic use of the b room in and around other people renting it out and myself using it. It will be my mixing and mastering suite while people are renting out the A room because there's actually quite good isolation. But it'll give people an opportunity because the rooms are going to be tied together with these 24 analog lines as well as a digital line. Give kids an opportunity who are learning, who are who are in the class, to, without interrupting or influencing the live session happening in the A room whatsoever, be in the B room with an instructor or two and really be dialing into what every single thing sounds like. And like they get to come through on a break and like see the way all the mics are placed. And then they go back and they hear it and they get to solo each one, start creating their own mixes. And then at the end of class, it's like, okay, cool. So now we're going to give you these 24 tracks that were recorded, these rough cuts. And you're sworn to secrecy. Here, go. We've given you a laptop to work with if you don't don't already have one because we have the funding to do it. And go mix this. Go mix this song and come back the next week. Frankly, I don't even feel comfortable reaching out to other people who run nonprofits until the studio is solid and it's a reliable place to do work, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, if I can't pay the rent and then I go gallivanting off, slicing at windmills, trying to set up a nonprofit, like the place is going to fail, you know, instantly. I mean, if I don't bust ass to get the place booked and sell gear right now, the place is going to fail in like three or four months. Then where would I be? And once again, let me play devil's advocate again. Is there a plan B if things do not go according to the plan A? No. Okay. I'm perfectly acceptable answer. Yeah. No, I'm going to do this. You're focused. Yeah. It's by hook or by crook. There, There is no other option. I mean, if I, I mean, to be frank, if this doesn't work out, um, I'm gonna probably be a, a broken person. <laughs> like, it'll no, it'll be totally brutal. I mean, I'm never building something like this again. I could never. You put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into this place because it looks great. I'll t- I, I've said it again, before. I'll say it again. Thank it you. looks fantastic. I mean, I worked for a year and a half to do this. 
And I quit my job after the first two months. And that, that's the main reason, frankly, because this is all DIY. I'm not buying a fancy acoustic treatment. This is mostly DIY. But it looks tasteful. I mean, it's tastefully you. done. I mean, you say it's DIY. I mean, it doesn't have a DIY feel. No, it doesn't look feel. like it, does it? No. It's very... I just say this because I did, actually did it myself. Right. Oh, and also, I have to say, most of the money was just spent on, like, functioning for a year and a half. And then, obviously, a lot on equipment and treatment. And I bought, like, five gallons of tongue oil. <laughs> I can't tell you how much lumber I bought, how much trim I bought. And then, of course, bits and bobs for, for soldering and a whole bunch of equipment that I didn't already have or that wasn't permaloned here or that I'm not renting or what have you. So, yeah, I spent a lot of money on that. But the amount of work that has gone into this place, it's like I could never do it again. I wanted to ask you about the amount of time you've spent here. Your work-life balance, has it just been lopsided on, on the work side? It was pretty lopsided. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was stressful on partners because I was spending insane amounts of time here, routine 16-hour days. Mm. So, like, I don't have a child myself, but my partner has a child, and I'm very involved in the child's life, and I love them dearly. And so, you know, finding that balance is pretty important. They just started kindergarten, so there's a little bit less of a need for me to do direct childcare during the days. And so I have a little bit more flexibility to really run this business. And so, yeah, I mean, it was definitely a balance. I don't know if I really felt pulled, but it was just more of a scheduling thing. I'm non-monogamous. And so I'm very used to having like totally hectic schedule uh, in terms of dating life and relationships and family life. So like, you know, with having multiple partners, like you get really good at using Google Calendar for everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so really it's it's actually not that hard to integrate like a lot of work with a lot of play and da da da. But like for sure, I mean, I haven't been on any vacations since I started this thing. Every once in a while, I go back to visit my family in Boston because that's huge. Right. Um, but like, yeah, I mean, I some somebody who I'm close to recently was like, you know, it'd be so nice to just kind of bum around Europe for a minute. I was just laughing. I was like, okay, cool. I wish I could do that, but you know, <laughs> not mean, in the cards. Health-wise, do you do anything to to maintain your health? Because oh. this is a very sedentary lifestyle, potentially. Oh, yeah, if you're engineering all the time. But, yeah. I mean, I'm still building. So, I mean, we haven't even finished the B room yet. I still have a bunch of building to do in that. I was incre It was so funny. I was incredibly fit because about eight months of the build-out was finished carpentry. Because mm -hmm. the walls were built. I mean, we had to hang a couple of doors. But the walls were built. And, yeah, I was just a finished carpenter for so long. And so I was, like, pretty flipping ripped. I mean, I, I couldn't break 150 pounds if I tried. Like I've been 146 or 148 since high school, but like it actually legitimately all turned into muscle for that period of time. And now it's like slowly like evening out again. But you know, I ride my bike every day. I walk everywhere. Riding, I, mean, just, I mean, riding your bike alone is going to be yeah, super beneficial. Just be active. But yeah, oh my God, there's so many fat old dudes behind consoles. I'm like, guys, get out and live your life. <laughs> but you know what? One thing that I can recommend to folks to stay healthy, and I think most doctors, if they were able to say it to most clients, have a lot of sex. Hmm. Like everybody should have a lot of sex. That will absolutely help keep you healthy as a baseline. And you should be getting exercises on top of that. And, and eating a decent diet. Oh my goodness. Yeah, you have to eat healthy. So if people want to find out more about you, is it survivorsound.com? Yeah, survivorsound.com is the website. It's at survivorsound on Instagram. There is a Facebook, which is of course, facebook.com slash survivorsound. Although it might be Survivor Sound Oakland, I don't know. But who uses Facebook anyways? It's terrible. <laughs> terrible platform but you know if people want to talk to me they can just email me it's jonah j-o-n-a-h at survivorsound.com i'll put a link in the show notes for all of this stuff so thanks uh, people can check stuff out oh but the phone number is really cute too it's 510-972-TAPE ah oh. right just to really drive home the analog <laughs> Well, Jonah, thank you for having me out. Hey. You got a great space here, and I wish you luck. Well, thank you so much for the nuanced conversation, too. You didn't want to talk about gear? No, I'm kidding. Right. <laughs> now, look at this other thing I have, too. It's really nice. Right. All right. Well, you take care, and thank you again. Thanks, buddy. Okay. Jonah Strauss, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me today. I deeply appreciate it. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing. Also happy to have Mr. Cliff Truesdale there on the Working Class Audio theme song. And Mr. Chuck Smith. Thank you all for listening once again. Spread the word. Check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, reach out. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.